0: Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, grace and peace to you. And at the outset here, I have to confess that this is going to be something of a hodgepodge sermon. Uh, Jim was supposed to teach uh, today, but he got COVID. So uh, him and him and Susan are doing well. Um, anyway, he's going to teach next week. Uh, so this sermon is going to be like when there's nothing to eat in the house and mom throws together together whatever is lying around into a stew and that's dinner. Um, So sometimes it's pretty good. Sometimes it just gets the job done. Um, We'll see about this morning. And uh, what I want to talk to you about, um, sometimes it's great, yeah. Um, But what I want to talk to you about is something, uh, well, something that's been on my heart for like the past two years. Uh, Just, well, anyway, I'll get to it. Um, It's something quite natural and obvious in our day to day experience. And that is, as the psalm that we read, Um, the witness of the creation to the creator. The heavens are telling of the glory of God, so the psalm goes. And it's something so intuitive and innate to the human mind that it almost has to be unlearned not to notice it, right? To see God revealed in his works. It's something startlingly clear in children, and not so clear in adults, right? We have to unlearn to see what is so obvious. And again, we and I and I speak here. I think primarily of the younger generations. Um, we have become accustomed to not noticing it. It seems that our entire modern way of life, its technology, its ideology, and etc., have conspired against it, so that we cannot see the obvious, the Creator's presence within his creation. Now, I read a lot of critiques against like the modern order. Uh, that's what interests me. It's weird. but um, And a critique that's often made is how the modern life estranges us from nature and therefore from God. And uh, you find that a lot. And one scholar compared our situation, um, just kind of the general tone of our way of life, to that of zoo animals, uh, specifically a condition that they suffer called zookosis, right? This is a real thing. Um, I don't know the last time you've been to our zoo, um, but zookosis is what the polar bear has, right? There's two of them, um, but one of them in particular, he likes to perch himself on that little cliff there, and all day he goes back and forth. All day he just paces there, and he just bobs his head, and this is zookosis, right? It's where animals their environment, their artificial environment, uh, it doesn't cater to the needs of that specific animal. And so what happens are these weird behaviors of repetitive and really functionless activities that they uh, fall into, right? And it's really sad to see these animals. And this particular author says that's something like our current situation, right, where we've created in our world, in our society, a Um, artificial environment that's harmful to us, Um, our own zoo, right, that uh, keeps us from our natural habitat. So we're alienated from nature, um, especially as we progress technologically uh, more than generations in the past could ever have even imagined. Um, So we're alienated from nature, and that has spiritual effects, Profound ones. It cuts us off, I believe, uh, from our first and most um, instinctual avenue to God, um, nature itself. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by what he has made. Right? Again, that innate, obvious testimony to the Creator. But what happens, right, when we're insulated from what God has made? right, when we're separated from the natural world around us. And, well, what's obviously happens is that the eloquent witness of creation falls on deaf ears. Um, and, and, and that most, again, that most instinctual, that most innate avenue to God is cut off. Um, and so, again, those books that I read, I think they're right. Um, an indispensable element, then, in our society's way back to God, is a return to nature, um, its subtle glory and its terrifying grandeur. And that, in its very small way, is kind of the point of this sermon. Um, I hope to share with you a theology of creation and its relationship to God, and namely how through understanding that, like the biblical testimony of, of creation and what it says about our world, how in that we can then hear the voice of creation again, and within that voice, the echoes of the Creator. Because scientific materialism has turned nature into a brute machine, a technology to be exploited. Um, But we hope to recover that spiritual vision. Not a machine, but in fact a creaturely duplicate of God's triune life. So, that's our goal. Now, a central doctrine... In the matter here is creation ex nihilo in the Latin. Um, That is creation from nothing. In the beginning, there was God and nothing else. Not quantum foam, not prime matter, not space, nor time, nor anything. And by the divine power, that absolute barrier was overcome from nothing. Right? Not, not, Not laws, not whatever. From nothing came everything. God, in other words, is a, not merely a maker, but a creator. Right? Not merely a maker, but a creator. He did not fashion the universe, as some other ancient myths have, from preexistent, quasi-eternal matter or laws. But he brought it into being from this abyss of nothingness. The Apostle Paul, in Romans uh, chapter 4, verse 17, he frames it this way. He says, God gives life to the dead, and calls into being that which does not exist. Calls into being that which does not exist. So, in one sense, it's fine to understand God as a maker, right? Because the scriptures depict him as such. But again, he's more primarily a creator. So those maker metaphors of an artisan or a craftsman or a technician, um, they're perfectly fine so long as we assign them their proper place. Um, God, Because, again, God is, in the scriptures, cast as a maker, especially in that early account we have in Genesis. He takes an earth that is formless and void, and he imposes order on it. And from chaos and from um, what what is itself waste and wild, he brings uh, something that is beautiful and that it functions. So there's that maker part of it. But, of course, prior to that, God... Created the heavens and the earth. He spoke everything into existence. So, again, what we're trying to underline here is that the whole of reality comes from God and no other source. Whatever is visible or invisible, space, time, matter, all of it originates in God. Now, that creation from nothing is a fairly standard uh, teaching, but Its implications, uh, and that's what we want to focus on today, are given less attention. If all things come from God, and they do, then all things exist as a sort of donation from God, a sort of uh, gift, you could say, from God. Our universe cannot account for its own existence. Instead, it receives it from God unceasingly and uninterruptedly as a gift. Now, that's quite a heady idea, and it's more philosophical than uh, scientific, but it's easier to approach by by thinking about the creation in contrast to the creator, right? Uh, The fountain in contrast to the stream that flows from it. So so let's go ahead and do that now. Um, The question is sometimes asked, and Maybe you've asked it, or maybe someone has asked it to you. If God made the world, who made God? Right, you've heard that. Um, in fact, uh, my nephew was at our house the other day, and um, I asked him that question. And, and he kind of gave me a puzzled look, and he said, doesn't God have a father? And, uh, well, he spoke better than he knew. Um, but really, the question, if God made the world, who made God, is nonsensical, because the term or title God, whatever else we mean by it, designates ultimate reality. So if by God we're talking about something of which there could be something else behind it or above it or before it, we're not yet talking about God, right? So even the question is flawed from the beginning, and of course the question could go on hypothetically forever, uh, an infinite regress. Well, who made that? Or on and on and on, right? Uh, Turtles all the way down, if you know uh, the expression. But at some point, um, reason dictates that that regression has to stop. There has to be some ground ultimately beneath it all. And traditionally, it's been answered, God is the ground upon which everything rests. Rests. He is the root of all roots, the beginning and the end. He is the reality of which there is nothing before or prior or nothing that could possibly have come in before him. God simply is. Now, in the more theological jargon, God is underived, right? Uh, we are derived, we derive our existence from somewhere else constantly. God is underived. Um, He's non-contingent, right? We're contingent. Our life depends on countless factors outside of us. God's own life comes from himself. Now, those are fancy words, underived and non-contingent, that communicate a very basic scriptural idea. Um, You guys know the story of Job. He's suffering, and he's questioning, and he's got all these worthless friends who are constantly going back at him, and toward the end, God speaks to Job. And he basically puts Job on trial. Job has had all the questions, and God now turns the questions to Job, and he starts talking about these amazing creatures, Leviathan and the behemoth. And anyway, in the middle of that, God says this in Job 41.11. He says, who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. So, who is given to me that I should repay him? So, of note for us here is that word given. In the Hebrew, it's the word kadam. And it literally means to be in front of or to be beforehand. So, so the idea here, um, and actually in the New King James Version or the King James Version, it reads, who has preceded me that I should repay him? Right? Who's gotten out in front of me? So, the idea here is that nothing has gone before God or nothing has preceded him or come in front of him so as to give him something that he doesn't already have within himself. As we've been saying, he's unaccounted for. There is nothing behind him or before him that explains him. No higher reality upon which he is dependent. All that God is, God is of himself. Again, another question that we often hear is, or, or another thing that people often say, is that God is good. But someone could ask the question, um, where does God get his goodness? Right? God is good, but where, where does that goodness come from? And how we answer that question gets to the heart of what we're talking about here. Um, is there such a thing as goodness that exists independently of God? So ultimately that God has to source his goodness from somewhere else, from something else outside him? If that's true, right, if there's a thing called goodness that God receives, that he gets, um, this goodness is prior to God. It's higher than God. That goodness, or whatever you might want to call it, is the ultimate reality and not God. And the same goes for any other attribute, for any other thing that we say about God. If God is good, it's not from another He doesn't get that goodness from a source outside of him. He doesn't draw it from something else. But he gets that goodness from himself. And likewise, if God is powerful, if God is wise, if God is just, it's not from something else. It's not from someone else, but it's from himself. He depends upon nothing else to be who he is. Hence the question that we have here, who has preceded me that I should repay him? God doesn't get such attributes or qualities. He is them. God is goodness and justice and wisdom and power. He is underived, unaccounted for, original, first. He's the alpha and the omega. He is his proper name. I am who I am. God is the end of all of that. So there's this exalted picture of the one we worship. Now, to us, right? Let's think about creation. We cannot say those same things about creatures, right? About ourselves. Uh, rather, the very heart of what it means for you and I to be creatures, to live in this world, is to be dependent. All things that exist receive that existence, right? It's not properly theirs. Our existence doesn't belong to us, but it's a grant or it's a donation uh, given to us from above. So, God is the ground of his own existence. He is I am. He has life in himself. He's his own ground. Um, his reason for existence comes from within him, but creatures, we don't have that ground, right? It, we don't give an account for why we're here. Our only ground is God. And this is, again, put nowhere more perfectly than in the Apostle Paul's words. And You'll find that I always come back to this verse again and again. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, What do you have? Um, So think of that in the most broadest sense, your qualities, your attributes, your life itself. What do you have that you did not receive? Right? It's, it's, It's a gift. And he says, If you receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So he tells us how dependent we are. Everything is received. And he says... Since it's received, I need to knock you down a couple pegs here and you need to be a little more humble. So the picture presented to us of creation is of perpetual dependence upon God. So not merely at this undetermined moment back in time, but indeed every moment. Creation has nothing to call its own. Everything proceeds as a donation from God. And it is by... um, It is his, this reality, it's God's by nature, and it's ours by grace. Again, creation doesn't account for its own existence, but its only ground is is God. So, given our current situation, right, stepping away from that and kind of coming into the way it's just assumed the way the world is in our life, um, in our modern world, we tend to understand creation um, as an artifact, you know, God was present back then to get things started. And now that they've started, um, it's free to carry on on its own without him, right? He kind of lit the fuse, and the fuse now goes, and it doesn't need him any longer. So God's relation is, is kind of like, uh, to use another illustration, is like the finger that flicks the first domino. And he set it all in motion, and now it goes, and it doesn't need him. It can go on and on and on, um, because it has its own, it, its own m- propulsion, so to speak, and its own laws and processes. Now, that's something of a deistic picture of God, right? The watchmaker who kind of puts it together, gets it cranked up, and sends it out and, and lets it go, right? And that was very popular in like the 18th and 19th century. Um, and that's the kind of closed system that materialists, uh, that atheists are so fond of. Um, We might need the hypothesis of God to explain what happened way back then. But, you know, the natural sciences, they can explain all that for us now. We know how things work. We know how the universe keeps going. Um, And so what happens is God comes to occupy the same conceptual space as the sciences. And so the more that science can explain, the less we need, you know, the God of the gaps. Um, And less we need God as the reason behind things. So we kind of... Anyway, but that, of course, is to, is to talk about God, not as he really is, but as some lesser being who can be explained away by, you know, natural science. So creation is not ultimately like a building that a builder constructs or a painting that a painter paints. Because in each of those analogies, too much independence is given to the creation, Once the thing is constructed or assembled, it no longer depends upon its creator. A building, one that's well built, will outlast its architect. It no longer needs him or her to be what it is. Now, it does have a relationship to its creator, but it's a tenuous one. It's one that is way back then in the original creation, but not really now, right? It can exist without him. A similar one would be like, uh, you know... We're we're having a daughter, and eventually she's going to have children. And I'll be the source, right, of uh, Aaron and I will be the source of, of her life. But she doesn't depend upon us. Our grandchildren won't depend upon us after we go. There's dependence way back then, but not in every moment. So creation understood that way. It runs counter to the scriptures. God's relation to creation is not merely that he granted it some existence at some point in time. Uh, but that he sustains it in every moment. Um, So it's not like a machine, right, that upholds itself according to its own internal systems. And it is that in one sense, but not ultimately. It is every moment graciously and mercifully held into existence by the triune God. So if not those metaphors, we should think of creation more in the sense of a singer and their song, or a thinker and her thoughts, or um, the sun and its rays. Uh, Again, those ones, there's too much independence, but with these other metaphors, um, again, my thoughts are nothing without my mind and the soul that generates them. The song is nothing without the vocal cords and the lungs that produce it. And so it is with the rays of the sun, the moment... It goes out, the rays cease to exist. And that's more what we have in creation. It's not like it just goes out there and it can do its own thing. Every moment, like a singer in its song, it relies upon God. And so such is the relationship. It doesn't possess its own autonomy over and against God, such that it can exist with or without him. Instead, it receives all that it is in every moment. It's this unceasing, um, ever-flowing, never-failing gift of existence that God gives to his creation. So, what is the upshot of this, right? Why why go on about this? What's the point? Well, this is the way that creation witnesses to its creator. So, getting back to kind of our original point, we want to see God in his creation. So, remember uh, the verse that we just quoted, uh, what do you have that you did not receive? So everything that is apart from sin and its consequences originates and comes from God. So again, what do you have? What does the creation have that it doesn't ultimately originate in God? The answer is nothing. It is his, right? Everything the creation has, everything the creation is, is first God's, and he shares it with his creation. It doesn't mean the creation is God. He shares it in its own creaturely way. So created things then are given, they are entrusted with What is properly God's. So consider as an example of this um, the first words of creation um, in the book of Genesis. God said, Let there be light. Now, when God creates light, he does not discover what it is when it comes into existence, right? It's not that he says, Let there be light, and then there's light, and then he realizes what light is. That's not how it works. He meant light. And if he meant light, if he said, let there be light, he knows about what light is before he spoke it into being. And so there's kind of an analogy here between the way God creates and human creation. So prior to human creation, whatever it might be, if it's a table or a greenhouse or, uh, uh, or whatever, it's first drafted up in the imagination or maybe on paper, and then it's brought into its material form right? We know about what we're going to create before we create it, at least if we want to make anything good. And so it is with God, right? Before he speaks the world into existence, light, trees, everything we see, stars, planets, all of it, he knows what it is. And then he speaks it into existence. So the question becomes, and this is one um, that theologians and philosophers have wrestled with for centuries. Um, It's called divine ideas, if you want to look it up more. But the question becomes, From where does God get his ideas about creation? So where does he gather all these ideas? Where does he know about what light is? And there's a lot of different opinions here, Uh, old philosophy like Platonism and so on and so forth, but the scriptures say that God gets his ideas from himself. Now, it's not explicit, it's implicit, and namely from the Son of God. God knows what light is before he creates it because... The scripture says, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, God is light. God knows what light is because God is himself light. And in, it's, it's created, light is, along with all other creaturely things, as a counterpart to the divine reality. So created light is a symbol. Uh, it's a witness. It's a, it's a testimony to uncreated light, to the very being of God. So the reason, again, I'm being redundant here, but I want to get this point across. The reason there's light, created light, is because there's such a thing as divine light, because God is himself light. So you've heard, uh, no doubt, I've said it many times, that God speaks anthropomorphically. That is, he kind of takes on human attributes so that we can understand him. So in the men's Bible study, we're um, we're going through the flood narrative, and there's Uh, very clearly anthropomorphic language there. God repented or God remembered, right? These are human ways of talking about God. And while that's true, and the Bible does a lot of that, I think probably a better way to put it is that rather than God taking anthropomorphic language is, is to say that creation itself is theomorphic, that creation itself resembles God. Right? Think of all the metaphors the Scripture uses to talk about God. He's a rock, right? He's this or that or the other relating to some created reality. God creates the world as a symbol of his own life. And so all things, right? And this is where, I mean, it's just so the world comes alive for the first time. All things contain some vestige or trace of their creator, And their uniqueness, right, their irreducibility of what they are, witnesses to him and to his nature. Because whatever the creature has, it has from God. And it can be traced back to God um, as its source. So if you want a way to put it, you could just say creation is an image of God and human beings as uh, the, the, the pinnacle of creation, are created in that image. But more to the point, creation is made in the image of the Son of God. Um, when God created all things, He did so through His what? He did so through His Word, right? And we find out later on in the Scriptures that that Word is not this innate, non-existent thing, but the very Word of God is God, right? The second person, person of the Trinity, God created all things through his Son, in and through the Son of God. Or, as the Gospel of John says, the logos, the word. And so, through the word, everything is created. And because it came through the word, the word's image is, like, stamped, impressed upon creation. Created things, we might say, are little words that speak to the word, Jesus Christ. So, in these little words, um, study Colossians 1, particularly that verse 15 through 19, if you want to know more about this. But so, so it all comes through Jesus, it all comes through the Word, and um, it, it bears His image. So inside these little words of created things, if we're attentive, right, if we are focused, we can hear the Word, eternal Word, from eternity. So C.S. Lewis and he's one I've gathered a lot of these ideas from. He says in his book, The Four Loves, um, he puts this probably the best way I've found. He says, only by being in some respect like him, only by being a manifestation of his beauty, loving kindness, wisdom, or goodness, has anything earthly, beloved, excited our love. He goes on, it's not that we have loved them too much, but that we did not quite understand what we were loving. It is not that we shall be asked to turn from them so dearly familiar to a stranger. When we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. So Lewis here directs us, um, and do this for yourself, to our earthly beloved, whatever it is that we take the most delight in in this world. It may be your spouse, it may be a particular place, it may be a particular hobby that you just take so much joy in. We all have them. And so, and what Lewis says here is, it's not that we love these things too much, but instead that we're mistaken about what we love when we love them. He says, we don't quite understand what we are loving. And so there's this question, well, what are we loving? What am I taking delight in when I delight in this particular person or thing? So when a husband delights in his wife's beauty, or a wife delights in her husband's gentleness, or... Any one of us takes joy in a beautiful mountainscape in the wilderness. What are we actually loving when we love those things? Now, we might imagine ourselves to be loving earthly things, but that's a mistake. Because, again, what do creation, what do the things of creation have that they didn't receive? What there is actually the creatures and not first gods. The husband does not delight primarily in his wife's beauty or the husband, I mean the wife or in her husband's gentleness, but the beauty and the gentleness that God has granted them first. What do you have that you did not receive? And so it's that way with every earthly thing that's not ultimately sin. When we delight in that, at least when we know what we're doing, we can also delight in God because it's a sign. It's an image of who God is. So C.S. Lewis says when we get to heaven, when we see God face to face, we're not going to see a stranger. We're going to realize that, oh, I've always loved this God. Now it's just revealed to me in its infinite depth. So all that we love in our earthly beloved was only first the loveliness that God gave it. It was his more than theirs. And so again, rather than turning from something familiar to a stranger, what we're going to do is rise from the shadow to the reality, from the streams to the fountain, from the echo to finally the tune itself. So there is something of a 50,000-foot uh, doctrine of creation. Um, now, it's this vision of things, uh, this way of seeing the world that we've been separated from. And we've traded out the spiritual vitality at the heart of things, um, the creation's transparency to the creator for a machine, for a mechanism. And, and certainly, I'm not denigrating the natural sciences and the goods that they have done. The only thing that I'm denigrating here is the fact that the vision of the natural sciences, how, how reductive it is, has become our only vision. Truth is reduced. Our vision of reality is reduced to what can be explained by the scientific method and that alone. And that's the sole arbiter and sole definition of truth, and we're all the more poorer for it. Because while that's accurate, right, of course the natural sciences are successful and true in their description of reality, it's only a very small slice of pie, of the pie, right? It's a very narrow way of looking at the world. Like It's like putting on rose-colored glasses and thinking that's all that there is. You can take them off and see there's so much more than that. So the question comes is, becomes, is well, how do we expand our vision to see God dwelling at the very heart of things, right? To look upon the creation and to see not just a thing, but to see a sign, to see even deeper than that, God speaking to us within it. And so it invariably starts, right, with, straying to see created things in their relation to God. So this is something of a spiritual aptitude that sees things not merely as objects or tools, right, that's the male brain, but um, as sacred things. It sees them not with a closed heart, but an open heart, one that again is able to discern those signs of God within it. And I, I know this sounds like sentimental or new-agey, but I think it's ultimately profoundly Christian. Or not to see things as autonomous, uh, independent entities, as if they stand on their own, as if they are what they are apart from God. Rather, we see them in their relationship to God, understanding that His Word is the hidden reason within them that grants them their coherence and logic. So created things are not an end in themselves, but windows or doorways that open up into the infinite expanse of glory. Um, if you want some help here, read William Blake. Read his poem uh, "Tiger, Tiger." It's just a kid's. It's just a kid's poem, but it's it. He can't even think about the tiger without thinking about it in relation to God. If, if the tiger is this fierce, graceful beast. He's said, like, well, who created you? Did, did the one who created the lamb also make the tiger? Anyway, he goes on, and it's a beautiful meditation on seeing things in relation to the Lord. But what I'm advocating here is really nothing special, as most disciplines in the Christian life are. Uh, it's, it's simply learning to see things with fresh eyes, right? Training our, our hearts, which are so prone to dullness, to be sensitive To the same thing and to the still small voice within those things. Um, And again, it's not different than how we approach the scriptures themselves, right? We believe that God is present in the words of scripture. Now, it's not something that immediately leaps from the page. I remember the first time I actually like tried to read the Bible, I was like, wow, this is kind of boring. Like I expected more from God's book. It's something that takes some subtlety, a, a keen awareness to discern God's presence and God's voice within the scriptures. So this proper spiritual vision then, uh, the way to cultivate it, is to view things as they are in relationship to God. And when we can begin to do that, when we're outfitted with this knowledge, there's not one square inch of creation that is not ultimately charged with spiritual significance and symbolic weight. Suddenly God's not out there, right, so distant from us. But he's near, the one in whom the scripture says, Acts 17, we live and move and have our being. He's present in everything, in every place. And there's no such thing as ordinary. There's no such thing as normal. We just have to see it. We just have to open our eyes. I like the way Bonaventure puts it. He, he rebukes us all. He says, whoever, therefore, is not illumined by splendors as great as those found in created things is blind. Whoever fails to heed outcries so great is deaf. Whoever fails to praise God on account of these effects is mute. Whoever does not turn from such great signs to their first principle is a fool. Therefore, open your eyes, rouse the ears of your spirit, release your lips, and apply your heart that you may see, hear, praise, love, worship, magnify, and honor your God in all creatures, or perhaps the whole world, May rise up against you. Open your eyes, open your hearts, see what's so clear and obvious. Now, I want to leave with a little bit more specificity in what we ought to do here. So, inseparable to this spiritual vision is thanksgiving and praise. We'll never get there without thanksgiving and praise, again, as Bonaventure suggests. Apart from praise specifically and thanksgiving more generally, what happens to the soul is that it starts to cave in on itself. Now, I notice this all the time in my life, that when I cease to everyday praise, to everyday give thanks, my field of vision is so narrow. The soul, its gaze is turned inward, and it loses the capacity to see anything beyond its own concerns or beyond its own needs, right? It, 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 the field of vision is secluded to me. And so it's inherently selfish. And so I find that when I'm in this state, that the same reality that two weeks ago I was in awe at, where I was constantly feeling God's presence in the world, that same reality, I'm heedless and I'm ignorant of it. There's glory all around and it right over my head. So when we don't give thanks, again, we cannot see things in as they are in relation to God, but only distortedly um, in relation to ourselves. Our vision of reality becomes inherently selfish and self-centered. And so if things seem cold and colorless, um, bland, then that is often the reason why. Because when we praise God and when we give thanks to God for what we have around us, the soul is enlarged, right? Its perspective is broadened to see and to receive the truth. And what it does is it reintroduces God to the picture, and it lets him occupy his rightful place at the very heart of things. And so what it does, and here's the key, is it, it empties the self, right? When I'm, when I'm praising God, when any of us is praising God, we're, we're simultaneously, simultaneously divesting ourselves of That ego, right? Of that that part of us that is so narrow. And so, apart from praise, we're we're gorged on ourselves, which is truly a sad existence. But with praise, with thanksgiving, the whole world is transparent to God and to his wonders. So never stop giving thanks. That's that's where it starts. Everything goes from there. So Wrapping this up now, um, another name for Holy Communion, what we're about to celebrate, is the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek word Eucharista, which simply means thanksgiving. And in some ways, communion, um, given to us as a sign and a symbol of Christ's sacrifice, um, is the consummate example of everything that I've been trying to tell us, or I've been trying to say. As God is present in creation, um, so, also, in these elements, he is present in a unique way to his people, right? What does the apostle Paul say? Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? some way God gives himself Christ gives himself to us through the elements. He also bids us the apostle to discern the body that is to recognize that the supper is not an ordinary thing but a communication of jesus 's presence to us so as we partake, as it give you guys time to respond to the Lord, um, let me just invite you to, to turn from that outward gaze, right? This meal is a meal of thanksgiving, to, to thank God for the gift of Christ, to thank God for creation and redemption, and just to pour out your heart. I know we all have got terrible things on our shoulders, but just give thanks, and the Lord will come to us. But... Uh, go ahead and do that now. Come receive the elements. Um, take them back to your table. Give thanks, and I will lead us in a prayer of thanksgiving in just a moment.